All right, so we are in the midst of a series. Uh, if you want to be prepared for, for the text today, please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. If you didn't bring a Bible, pull out your phone. If you didn't bring your phone, wow, just wow. Um, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. So uh, go ahead and grab them, find Luke chapter 22. We are in the middle of a series called Why This? And what we're trying to do is trying to give some clear instruction and teaching about why we do the things that we do, why the things that we do are important. And some of those are, are, are unique to our movement, to our churches, the Christian churches, the churches of Christ, sometimes called the restoration movement, why it matters so much that we talk about baptism. And this morning, why communion? Why does communion matter so much? Which is why we've switched the order of service, because uh, we'll take communion directly following, following the sermon. I don't know of, and, and, I, and I might be wrong, but I don't know of another Protestant church, a non-Roman Catholic church, that takes communion every single Sunday. And we put a high and heavy emphasis. In fact, it is sits, most of the time, communion will sit in the center of our service because it is the center of our gathering. It is the most important thing that we do as we gather together. And I hope that today I can excite you um, concerning communion, that you will be a person who sees at least a little bit of the great and high value uh, that happens as the church gathers to share in communion together. So if you found in your Bibles, I'm going to read Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 14. And we'll be coming back here again and again and again, so don't close it up. We'll, be, we'll continue to look at it. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 and following. And when the hour came, he, that is Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, um, there are four words that we use interchangeably to refer to the exact same thing. When you're reading Acts, you'll see it often called breaking bread. And as we've just read this text, hopefully it's obvious why it would be called that, because we're, we're breaking bread together. Another uh, euphemism, it became even a euphemism just for eating in general. Uh, we'll use the word the Lord's Supper, because as we just read, they were at supper. This is the pa one of the Passover feasts that they're having. Uh, Jesus and his, uh, he and his apostles are eating, and so we might call it the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we'll call it communion. In fact, that's what I tend to call it, communion, because we are exchanging in something very intimate, personal, and real as the church together with God. We are communing with one another, and we are communing with God in a very particular Way And if you are at a very fancy church, or some of you maybe who are history buffs, you might hear it called uh, the Eucharist, which is a Greek word meaning thanksgiving. And that should be obvious as well, because we are giving thanks together for what God has done in making provision for our salvation via the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ our Lord. So, why does communion matter so much. What does communion mean? What is it about? Well, 
let's get going. And I died already. Next slide. Good. Uh, it is the foreshadowing of the kingdom of God. I want you to notice that Jesus says this twice. He says, I earnestly desired, in verse 15, to eat this with you before I suffer. And I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he takes the cup and he says the same thing. I'm not going to drink from this again. I am not going to eat and I'm not going to drink until I can eat and drink with you in the kingdom of God. Right now then, Jesus is fasting as it were. Jesus, who is physical form, right? We, we, we know that he, he had physical form. He is fasting, as it were, waiting for the coming of the kingdom of God so that he can feast with you. Because think about it. What's a family reunion without food? Have you ever been to a family reunion with no food at all? Or, or a Super Bowl party where you call all your friends up and say, hey, everybody get together. We're going to have this great celebration. Super Bowl party. Don't, we're not going to eat anything, though. There'll be no food there. I can guarantee that will be a, a Super Bowl party attended by one, and that's you, right? I mean, we understand this naturally, that when we gather with friends, when we gather with family, that part of what we do in celebration is the eating of food, which is why we see so often the coming of the kingdom of God described by Jesus parabolically as he's telling stories. He says, at the feast of Abraham, at this great wedding feast, as we read in Revelation toward the end, this great wedding feast of all of creation coming to consummation where Jesus has come and he has judged the world and he has set up his kingdom and he has restored us in, in new and glorified bodies. And we are all sitting down at a table to feast. Every time we partake of communion, we declare that is true. That is true. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, because it is a foreshadow of the kingdom of God. The gospel, in a nutshell, is this. The kingdom of God is at hand, which is why Jesus proclaims it throughout Judea and, and through Samaria and into Jerusalem. He declares it again and again. My coming, the judgment of the world, the restoration of the world, it is at hand. Prepare for it. And the church foreshadows that coming every time we take communion. In fact, without that truth, without the second coming of Jesus Christ and his judgment and restoration, the gospel means nothing. Baptism means nothing. Teaching means nothing. Repentance means nothing. Communion means nothing without that truth. Consider Psalm, if you can go to the next slide, please. Psalm 96 verses 11 through 13. It says this, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the Seas roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. And then, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. I want you to catch the, the impact of that. What does it say there? It says that the coming judgment of God in his return... The coming of Jesus and all that that means, instead of it being bad news. In fact, I, I find that so very often Christians are ashamed of this message. Uh, we, we sort of shrink back. We, we don't want to talk about the coming of Jesus. We don't want to talk about judgment. And if we do, we kind of do it in low tones like, yeah, I, kinda, I got some bad news for you guys. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that God's going to do this. It's, I, I know it's, it's rough to hear. And so we're very apologetic about all this. Is that in keeping with what we just read here? Absolutely not. All of creation is groaning 
for the coming of Jesus Christ. What's it say? It says that the seas sing, the trees clap, the heavens and the earth itself shouts and screams for joy at the coming of Jesus Christ. It isn't bad news. It is the best news that has ever been declared because it means this. It means that death does not have the final answer. Sin is not the last word. That finally everything will be made right. That's good news. And the church declares it every single time we partake in communion The day of judgment, the day of Jesus' return isn't bad news. It's amazing news. It is the news that all of creation is groaning to hear. And it isn't rejoicing because you get to say to that group of people, whoever they are for you, that you don't like, ha, 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 they're finally getting theirs. Or to tell all those people who rejected Christianity, well, I told you so. No, it is a moment when everything finally gets set Right, The second coming is, is not just something that the church is waiting for, but all of creation, the earth itself, hungers to be set free from the bondage, the Bible says, to corruption and obtain the freedom, the same freedom that you experience as the sons and daughters of God. The earth shares the hunger of the church, which eagerly anticipates the coming of Jesus Christ, loving his appearing. We who have the first fruits who groan inwardly, awaiting for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. Every time we partake of communion, we declare that truth. But we do more than just declare the truth of this as the foreshadowing of the kingdom of God. We are enacting that truth. Imagine the coming of uh, of Jesus and and the, the judgment of the world, the resurrection of the faithful, the giving of the eternal body, and the great table of the Lord. Imagine it. Imagine the food. Imagine the splendor. Imagine God, uh, the triune God, at the head of that table. Now imagine that table. Will men and women sit in different spots? Will young be relegated to the children's table and, and the old will sort of take the seats of, of, of importance? Will black be on one end and white on another? Will, uh, will the Americans be a little closer to the front because God likes America a little more than he likes the Chinese over in the back? Is, is, is that the way the kingdom is going to be? No, obviously that's ridiculous. In the coming of the kingdom of God, all of those things which have caused enmity and, and hatred and brokenness And division will be washed away. And at that kingdom, we will all be known as one thing, the sons and daughters of God. And the church, this morning, as we partake of of the table, declares that that is true then and it is true now. As men and women, rich and poor, young and old, black and white, eat of the same table declaring the same truth that all those things which before divided us are now nailed to the cross and we are all the sons and daughters of God. We foreshadow the coming of the kingdom of God and we enact its presence when we partake of the table together. Now the coming of the kingdom of God and its reality is only made possible by the death of Jesus Christ which is the second point here. That it is representative, communion is representative of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says here. Um, uh, He says, take this bread and and divide it among yourselves. In in Matthew and in 1 Corinthians, we get uh, an extended detail that Jesus actually breaks the bread and gives it uh, to them. The cup 
is a symbol of his blood, that this is all evidence of his atonement for sin. We read in the scriptures that God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That is, Jesus, who, who never sinned, who never knew sin, he, didn't, he had no intimate knowledge. Of course, he could have the temptations that we have all experienced, but had no intimate knowledge of ever committing a sin. And God laid upon him, we read in, in Isaiah, the sins of the world. He became sin who never knew sin that we might, the scriptures say, become the righteousness of God. That God could look at you and me who know sin really, really well and say, I see righteousness. I see a saint. That's incredible. And we remember that as we look at the loaf, which is shattered. I want you to notice that it's not a whole loaf. It's, it's broken. It's, it's shattered to pieces just as Jesus was shattered upon the cross for our sin, just as he paid that penalty. And he says that this death was not an accident. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, the Romans wanted to kill me, so they killed me, or the Jews conspired against me, and so I died. He said, no, from eternity past, it was God's plan that he would atone for the sins of the world through the giving of his own self. Jesus says, I have the power to lay down my life. I have the power to pick it back up. No one takes it from me. I want you to imagine, just get it in your mind for a second, that it is the will of God that he be crushed for you. That he be shattered for you. Think about it this way. Think about, consider the the crucifixion for just a moment. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is the one by whom, through whom, and for thing. This is 1 Corinthians, uh, or Colossians chapters 1 and 2. Uh, By whom, uh, through whom, and for whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, that which is seen and that which is unseen. This is the creator who condescended to us and came down and took on flesh. And then, in flesh, he went to the cross. And I want you to consider not the pain for a moment. I just set the pain aside for a second and consider the shame of it. That they, they brought their creator before them and they stripped him naked so that they could laugh at him. They spit in his face. They punched him. They put a crown of thorns and purple robe to throw over him to mock him as royalty, but to affix the crown of thorns upon his head because they didn't just set it there. They set it there and then they beat it into place with rods. They lashed him to pieces and then as he is naked and bleeding, they give him the instrument upon which they are going to kill him and they say, you take it to Golgotha. You take it to the place of the skull. The indignity of all of this, the shame of all of this, the Son of God did to purchase your freedom. Your freedom from death, your freedom from sin, your freedom from the powers of hell, that you might be called saint. You might be called righteous. You might be called a son or daughter of God. Rome and the Jewish authorities perpetrated this indignity, but it is your sin and it is my sin that made that indignity necessary. And when we come to the communion moment, we remember in all of its fullness the glory and the gory details of the crucifixion of the Son of God so that you and I might be free. Amazing grace. 
we sing that song. Do you have any idea how amazing that grace is? I mean, it's, in, it's incredible. It is incredible that the Son of God would give with such self-giving sacrifice and self-giving love. But I want you to also see the scandal of taking communion. Because it isn't just to say, thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done. Thank you for your self-giving love. It is to say, now I am like you. I am now an agent of self-giving love. The Jesus who did not respond evil for evil, kind for kind, lash for lash, blow for blow, insult for insult, says to you, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. And so when we partake of communion, we don't just declare the grace of God as amazing and wonderful as it is. We declare the grace of God taking place in our own life so that we can be agents of grace as well. And without that, you can't have this. Without your willingness to take up your cross and follow, you make a mockery of his sacrifice. And so when we, when we take um, communion, not only do we, uh, do we remember the sacrifice that Jesus uh, gave for us, but we say, I'm willing to sacrifice too. This is now my way of life. Thirdly, thirdly, I want you to notice what Jesus asks us to do. And, and hopefully this is, this is uh, I don't need to talk about this a whole lot. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And we read this again in, in 1 Corinthians. When you take this, this is how you are to remember me. I, I've, I've asked you to remember me in this way. And so if, if I get asked, and it does happen sometimes. In fact, people who are sort of new, uh, they'll come in and say, wow, it's interesting. You guys take communion every Sunday. Why do you do it so often? And I say, because I want to remember Jesus. Right, I, I want to remember him, and this is this is the the most visceral way to remember to remember Jesus. Break the bread, drink the cup. Fourthly, you notice this. This is a paramount importance. It is the sign of the new covenant in Jesus' blood. He says that there in um, in verse twenty. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. His blood becomes the mark of our covenant with God. Now, covenant's a word we don't use a lot. Uh, we use it within marriage. We often talk about the marriage covenant and, and the bond that happens between a man and wife as they, as they, as they commit to one another. And we might use the word contract um, outside uh, in, in other experiences or agreements. God is a covenanting God. He is a God who creates agreements. And if we go back to the Old Testament, the beginning of his, uh, of his building and redeeming the world, he begins with one man, with Abraham, and all of the children that will come off of Abraham that we call Israel or the Jews in the Old Testament. And he says to them, out of his own grace, right, what did Abraham to deserve any of this, do to deserve any of this? Nothing, right? In fact, if you read, if you read Genesis, Abraham is a sketchy dude. Like, he does things that you're like, hmm, you know, probably not the best choices. And yet, what does God do? God responds saying, no, I, I, I'm going to forgive that because I've come to you because I asked you to do something and you believed me and I credited your belief as righteousness. Right? That's what Paul's argument there in, in Romans chapter 3 and 4. So, uh, I got off track. What was I talking about? Right, covenant. So, God comes to uh, Israel and he says, I am going to be your God and you are going to be my people. And here's the, here's the contract between us. I will be your God, and I will bless you, I will keep you, I'll protect you, I will you know, do all of these things for you, and you will be my people, and you will keep my laws. 
I will tell you how to live your life uh, in, in certain aspects of, of, of righteousness and judgment, I'll tell you how to make sacrifices and how to be uh, faithful to me, and you will do it. And so that's where we get Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books of the law, the books of Moses, the Torah. Um, that is the grounding of their keeping the law. That is the grounding of their covenant between God. If they are unfaithful to that law, God has every right to walk away. God is gracious, though, and not like us at all. And he doesn't walk away. He stays with us. But do you see then the shift that is happening here in Jesus? It's a mighty shift. It was foretold by the prophets. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So after a time of, 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 um, of persecution and things that are happening within the Old Testament, after that time, in those days, declares the Lord, I will take my law and I will put it within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. So he's taking it, Jeremiah is foretelling a time when the law, the keeping of the law, the keeping of all of those commandments will no longer be the the contract that we have with God. Something will replace it. It's something that's going to write it on our hearts. It's going to transform us. Because you could look at the Old Testament and you could keep every single one of those laws and never be a person decent inside. It says don't commit adultery, Jesus, right, in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, I'm shifting it. I don't want you to think about adultery. Don't be greedy. Don't, don't, don't bear false witness. Don't, don't be the person who thinks about lying and bearing false witness. Don't be the person who loves money, but rather love your brothers and sisters in Christ. But we see this transformation. And Jesus says here, the grounding of the contract that you are now going to have with God is no longer the keeping of all of these rituals, but rather it is going to be in my life, my death, and my resurrection, the covenant that we have with God is now within the death of Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not as of works, lest anyone boast. Because you could keep all the laws of the Old Testament. Paul says that. He says, I kept it. I kept all of these laws. I was, I was a Jew among Jews. And now I know that the only reason I have anything at all is because the grace and mercy that has been purchased for me by Jesus' death on the cross. And when we take communion, we declare that the ground of our forgiveness isn't because we're good people. It isn't because you've done everything right. I know y'all, right? It isn't because you deserve it. And here's the scandalous thing, because you don't. It is because God in his grace has revealed that to you. He has called you, and you have put your faith in him. And Jesus has paid the penalty for your sins. This is why John in his prologue says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And every time the church gathers, and every time we take communion together, we remember that covenant. Why take communion so often? Because we love to remember that covenant. Don't you love to remember that covenant? It isn't because I'm perfect. It isn't because I deserve it. It isn't because I'm better than this person over here. It is because Jesus has forgiven me by his own blood. I believe it. Lastly, it is a sign of the new covenant people. And we do a disservice. This is one of the errors that our churches are often um, culpable in. And that is that we often think of this moment as completely introspective. This is a moment where I search my heart before my God. It's sort of this sort of me mentality. 
And this doesn't seem to be in keeping, of course, with the New Testament in general, but certainly not within the passage that grounds the Lord's Supper. You notice what Jesus says? He says in verse 15, I have earnestly, I have eagerly, I, I couldn't wait for it to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And I'm not going to eat of it again. I'm not going to break the bread and take the cup. I'm not going to do this again until I am with you again. It's interesting how many metaphors the, the New Testament uses to talk about, to talk about Christians. It calls us family. It calls us the body of Christ. It calls us a building being constructed by the Holy Spirit. It so often refers to us a temple that is built unto our God. It so often refers to us as a people. And when we declare or when we partake of communion, we aren't just making a solitary moment. Of course, it is important to search our hearts and uh, to pray and to, to think upon the sacrifice of Jesus, to think about how faithful we've been living up to it. All of that is true. But you take the tray and you pass it to somebody else. And that person is your brother or sister in Christ. And you are partaking together. It is a communal act that we do as a people who love Jesus, who love the covenant, who love one another. If you take communion with a person, not only are you declaring all of the things that we've talked about thus far, but you are also declaring your allegiance, your loyalty, your love and commitment to them. That like Jesus died for them, you are willing to die for them. Are you willing to die for the people in the pew next to you? Are you willing to give yourself up for them? This is what we're doing in this moment. And, and so I think that often we are too flippant when we come to communion. It is a deep and meaningful act because the things that God has done for us and to us are deep and meaningful, binding us together with one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit from which we all draw our lives. And Ephesians chapter 2 really brings this out. Ephesians uh, chapter 2, I'm going to read a little section of it, uh, beginning with, with verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So the, 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 the hostility that was between us, whether it's because we're racially divided, or uh, divided by gender, or, or divided just because uh, somebody sat in your seat this Sunday, I don't know, whatever it is, God has taken that division and he has shattered it, he has broken it down because the power of the gospel is not just the power to save you, but to save everyone around you and to draw them together in a unity of love. He has broken down all of the dividing walls of hostility, whatever it was that that you had that kept you from God has now been undone and therefore everything that has kept the person next to you from God has been undone and therefore we are able to be drawn together. He has abolished the law of its commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself. This is what God desires, to create in himself one new man in place of two so that he might make peace and reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those of you who are far off, and he preached peace to those of you who have been in church your whole lives. He says to all of us, peace. Bringing together hostile groups, 
bringing together us with God, his sacrificial atonement doesn't just take uh, away the sin that divides us from God, but the sin that divides us from one another, to call to himself all who would have ears to hear, to recreate creation in a powerful, living, meaningful, and eternal way. So, bringing this all to a conclusion... See if I got it working yet. Nope, still nothing. Bringing it all to a conclusion, what is the meaning of, of communion? And, and, we've, and we've looked at it here uh, in this text, just this text. We haven't gone outside of it too much. And we could look at Matthew, we could look at 1 Corinthians, we could look all over the place and see many other, uh, many other purposes, many other meanings, many other things that communion does. But just for this morning, just for this morning, we see uh, five of them. It foreshadows the kingdom of God. It is representative of the sacrifice of Jesus. It is how we are asked to remember Jesus. It is the sign of the new covenant. It is the sign of the new covenant people. So why take communion? <sighs> Have you been listening? Why do it so often? I, if you've been listening, it, it, it's, it's, it's deep. It's meaningful. It is something that, that the church has been given as a gift so that we might together have something visceral that reminds us of all that God has, has done. There are two passages that come directly to mind from Acts as we scour Acts as the restoration movement and say, okay, what did those early Christians do so that we can do what they did so that we can be in keeping with what Scripture says? And there's two passages in Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 2. This is after that first moment, that big sermon that Peter preaches and and, and all of Jerusalem is transformed and, and people are coming in droves to, to God. It says that they did this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, right? To communion and to prayer. And then it says how often they did it. Day after day. Imagine going to church every single day. Eating with other Christians and breaking communion in communion with other Christians every single day. This is the process of the earliest church. As we see things move on, we have in Acts chapter 17, or chapter 20, verse 7, that on the first day of the week, we see that they gathered. And they gathered particularly, interestingly, for one purpose, right? To break bread together. To remember and foreshadow the coming of the kingdom of God. To remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. To remember Jesus to remember the covenant that we have with God and to remember that you are not alone. That you do not stand alone this morning. You do not, there are no lone wolf Christians. We are the body of Christ and we anticipate a day when we see that great cloud of witnesses, the thousands, millions of Christians that have come before those saints of old, those people who paid, paid, for the Bible with their own blood, those people who passed it on with their very lives, all of the people who have gone before us and standing and sitting down at this great table to feast with a triune God and to finally experience the fullness of restoration. That is what we proclaim. That's what you preach to one another as you partake of the table this morning. And so right now, that's exactly what we're gonna do. I'm going to have the men come down front. I'm going to pray. Uh, we're going to take communion together. We're going to sing a few more songs of worship. Uh, and, then, and then I'll dismiss this again with prayer. So um, come on down front and bow with me for a word of prayer, please.
Righteous and living God, we stand before you as paupers. Uh, We know that we are completely uh, in need of your mercy and your grace. And we thank you, we thank you, we thank you.